The Truth of Poetry Reflections on Virgil's Aeneid by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 8 Okay, so the second half of the Aeneid in one fell swoop. And it's the Iliad half of the Aeneid, the war half of the Aeneid. The first half was the Odyssey half, the journeyings. And this is the war. And it begins with Aeneas and his people arriving in Italy and finding there a, a society called the Latium Society. And its king is Latinus and its uh, queen is Amata. And they have a daughter whose name is Lavinia. Lavinia has been betrothed to Turnus. But Latinus has had a vision that a stranger will come and that the marriage between Lavinia and this stranger is destined, and it is one for the benefit of the Latin people. And so he's warm to Aeneas, and he welcomes Aeneas and his people warmly. So Juno, who opposes all this, has to get into action, and she gets into action by calling on the talents of Electo. And Electo is one of the Furies, and she is the one who's expert in, at ruining the, what we call the peace process. And we're, our world is full of this kind of stuff because we're constantly talking about the peace process somewhere or other uh, in the Middle East, in uh, Bosnia, in Northern Ireland, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And we, we all know the language perfectly well. The peace process is going along. The peace pl- process is being disrupted by those who are the most, uh, the most violent partisans and so on and so forth. Well, Electo is uh, the mythological figure who's responsible for this, uh, or at least one of them in the Greek world. They are, they're they called the Furies. And you, you might be interested, uh, the Latins adopted the, the Greek mythological categories here as elsewhere. And you might be interested that the Furies, there were usually three Furies, and they had slightly uh, specified task. It's really all one task, but they were slightly specified. One was to sow strife, that's electo. Another was to create jealousy or envy. And I would say that the way we think about that in Girard's scheme of things is that would be the fury who causes the rival double relationship in which somebody fixates on the opponent and becomes so preoccupied with checking the hated opponent, that nothing else comes into view. And then the third fury is in charge of vengeance, which is just unleashing all of the social and psychological reflexes that the other two furies have aroused. Just to put the New Testament backdrop to this, in the New Testament, the forces that do exactly the same thing have other names. They are the forces of the satanic forces, the diabolical forces, and I did a little thing on this in the book, uh, that there are two manifestations, two primary manifestations of them. One is the diabolos, who the name means to throw something across. And the diabolos, we get the word devil from diabolos, the diabolos causes discord, causes a separation and opposition. And the diabolos, and this is why I argued in the book that in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus essentially recognizes that the diabolos has two faces, two manifestations, the other being Satan. And the word Satan means the accuser. So there you have the same scheme of things. The Furies sow strife, 
bring about the doubles relationship or all the envy and, and jealousy, and then they bring vengeance. They arouse vengeance. Uh, in the New Testament, you have the Diabolos creating strife and the Satan pointing the accusatory finger and focusing all of that madness onto one victim and restoring order, and therefore making kingdoms, making the nations of the world. And that's what Jesus sees in the wilderness, that this is precisely the diabolical economy that creates culture. The other word for all of this in the New Testament is scandal. Uh, a scandal is something that causes everybody to get caught up in something that's a total preoccupation and that leads inevitably to violence and a social breakdown. And in the New Testament, Jesus constantly says to his disciples, do not sow scandal. There will be a scandal. The gospel itself is scandalous. Nevertheless, there, that to that inevitable scandal, we should add not any others because once we break this mechanism for turning scandal finally back into culture, which is the scapegoating mechanism, once we demolish that or set in motion the historical forces that will demolish that, we have to at the same time learn not to sow scandal, not to be scandalous, not to scandalize others or be scandalized by them. And if we don't learn that, the absence of that scapegoating mechanism will cause us to awaken scandals for which we have no cure and we'll slide into a terrible apocalypse. And that's why the apocalyptic language of the New Testament is apropos, I think, anthropologically. Back to Virgil here. And here's what we're told. Juno says to Electo, You can arm for battle brothers, though they feel at one, and ruin homes with hatred. And you carry firebrands and lashes beneath their roofs. You have a thousand names and a thousand ways of injuring. Awake your fertile breasts and break this settled peace. Sow war and crime. Let sudden quarrel spur young men to want, demand, and seize the sword. To want, demand, and seize the sword. This takes us a little bit back to the, the image of the labyrinth, which we can't really leave behind because I think it's a central image in the poem. Remember when Virgil, and I speak of it this way, when Virgil saw the labyrinth, that is to say, he saw the Trojan boys going through their little marches, what he was seeing was history in fast motion. That is to say, the little Trojan boys would gather into groups, charge at one another, flee from one another, come back as though making treaty, march side by side, and then they would dissolve into other groups and march towards each other and flee and chase and then come together as, as though in treaty and march side by side. And then it would break up again and they would go apart and come back together again and flee and chase, and, and then finally a treaty would be... In other words, it was history over and over and over and over and over again, this process. And what I think Virgil saw through a glass darkly, no doubt, when he saw that was, oh my goodness, this is how we create order. This is precisely how we create order at the expense of our historical enemies. We know no other way of creating order except at the expense of our historical enemies, you see. Uh, suddenly the Cold War is over and we're and societies are dissolving everywhere. So, in other words, Virgil saw something there that was tremendously disheartening uh, and took the wind out of his sails in terms of the promise that he had originally in mind uh, for Pax Romana. And I think one of the things, and it goes along with the simile that he attaches to that simile of the labyrinth, 
He saw that and he said, that's a labyrinth. We can't, we'll never get out of it. And the other simile he attached to that was, it's like dolphins frolicking. In other words, they love it. When we're really engaged in that process, it's tremendously exciting. And so they love it. And here, Electo starts to do her work. And as Juno says, she has the recipe for spurring such quarrels that will make young men want, demand, and seize the sword. Want, demand, and seize the sword. In other words, really lust for war. Now, there is a logic to this, you see. It's a demonic logic. It's the logos of violence. The logic in terms of the old anthropology is that when there's a social meltdown, the cure is for the disease to fully run its course. And that is for the madness to become supreme madness, at the conclusion of which everyone will focus all their madness on one common object of contempt, one victim, one witch, one subculture, one uh, ethnic minority, etc., uh, etc., et one stranger or group of strangers. Uh, and then in that supreme moment of madness, there will be clarity. You see, there will be community again, camaraderie, solid, social solidarity at, as the scapegoats are expelled or crushed. And so the, there is a logic in the madness. We have to go completely mad in order for that to happen. That's what, that's what we call the mob phenomenon. So Electo works her will on Amata, of course. Amata first goes to Latinus and she says, we have, we, this, we have to break up this relationship with these uh, Trojans. Uh, and she argues against it and so on. They're strangers and so on. And it doesn't do any good. Uh, Latinus stands his ground. And then it says, when she has tried these useless words and sees Latinus standing firm against her, when the serpent's maddening mischief has slid within her bowels and traveled all her body, exciting her with monstrous fantasies, the wretched queen, indeed hysterical, rages throughout the city. In other words, she falls into this madness and becomes a kind of living firebrand. One point we might pause and make, and that is that it says here, when the serpent's maddening mischief has slid within her bowels and traveled all her body, exciting her with monstrous fantasy, one of the things we don't do often enough, or maybe we do it in a, some other way, is we don't take into consideration the fact that when Paul talks about the flesh, he's not just talking about sexuality. I mean, it certainly has sexual connotations, but uh, it's not exclusively that. And when we get scandalized, when we fall into scandal, it produces physiological effects. And these physiological effects are accompanied by fantasies that correspond to them. You see? And so there is the problem of the flesh in human life, we have certain principles, moral principles that we want to hold to, but then somebody cuts in front of you in traffic. <laughs> and what happens? Something happens, and it's not just in your head. It's a physiological thing, you know? Or, you know, somebody says something to you or really puts you down or whatever it is, you know, and you there are physiological effects that are part of this. And the worst thing to do or one of the worst things to do, no doubt, is to try to just shut down the whole operation so as to prevent them from happening. One can't do that. But nevertheless, uh, one has to realize that they're pretty powerful and you have to take them into consideration. There is a simile here 
And the simile that Virgil provides is a simile of a top spinning through an open courtyard with boys lashing at it all the while. And it's the simile of Amata going about being a firebrand, spreading this ferment for war. Now, the ancients always said the gods must be doing this because how, what's happened? Suddenly this person is possessed by something. It clearly looks to the ancients as, as though it's a possession. And I think they were probably closer to it than we are because we think, oh, well, they must be doing this because of what is it? Even sophisticated psychoanalytical or psychotherapeutic theories about this are not very powerful, and they're probably no more powerful than the ancient idea of possession, which has uh, some clear dangers if you, in terms of demonizing and so on, but it also has, I think, some value. So the, here's the metaphor of the top being goaded on by these boys playing uh, with the top in the courtyard. But then it says, the queen is driven on her course among her cities and fierce peoples. She pretends that Bacchus has her. Racing to the forest, Amata now tries greater scandal, spurs to greater madness. So at a certain point, she claims that all this is coming from Bacchus, and she flees to the woods where the Bacchanalian ritual might take place. But what's interesting here is that Virgil says she pretends that Bacchus has her. She feigns Bacchic possession. I think the Bacchic possession is a necessary pretension because nobody wants to admit that it's Electo that has us. Electo is not politically correct enough to justify it. One has to have something else. You could say that the left has a tendency to disguise the electo phenomenon in terms of Dionysus, which is just Bacchus, the Greek. I'd, I prefer Dionysus because by the time it gets to the Romans, you know, the Stoic thing, and the, uh, it has watered itself down a little bit, and Bacchus becomes just a sort of uh, inebriate or something. But in the Greek world, Dionysus is pretty savage. So it's better to stay with Dionysus when you're talking about this force. So the left, so to speak, tends to designate these forces, these impulses to which one gives vent. Uh, in terms of Dionysus. And the right, well, variously, but the, the right that has become a, of concern to us lately, which is the sort of militia right, fundamentalist right, their tendency is to justify it in terms of the book of Revelation or something like that. Uh, but it's the same thing. It's really electo. Nobody wants to let it be known that it's electo that's operating. So we have these other things that have broader appeal. So... I, that would be my interpretation of that, to make it a little more contemporary for us. It says, Electo drives Amata on with Bacchus's goads. And pretty soon everybody's caught up in it. And one of the people, of course, caught up in it, and the one who will be the central one caught up in it, is Turnus, who later becomes the great double rival against Aeneas. And Turnus is a young Rambo figure. He's a Rutulian, he's a roughneck, he's itching for a fight. And he gets caught up in it very quickly. There's a simile that's associated. You know, Virgil puts these similes in. They're very helpful. And the simile for Turnus, first of all, he's intoxicated by this, by what, by what Amata is doing at, at Electo's urging. And it says, lust for the sword and war's damnable madness are raging in him, in Turnus. 
Just as when burning loudly crackling twigs are heaped beneath a seizing cauldron's ribs, the liquid dances with heat within the water rages violent and pours a steam of smoke and foam. It will not rest but flies up with dense steam. So that's the simile of Turnus. He's just a boiling cauldron. Mad it's madness. It's just madness. But it's madness if it is pure conviction. No second thoughts. No doubts. Pure conviction. Well, the best lack all conviction and the worst are full of passionate intensity. So here's the simile that attaches to Aeneas that I think has to be correlated with this one of Turnus. Of Aeneas it says, When the Trojan hero has seen all his savagery, he wavers on a giant tide of troubles. He's the proto-Hamlet. He's Hamlet in the making. His racing mind is split. It shifts here, there, and rushes on to many different plans, turning to everything, even as when the quivering light of water in bronze basins, reflected from the moon's glittering image, glides across all things and now darts skyward, strikes the roof's high ceiling. So here is uncertainty. The image here is light coming in and reflecting in this pool of calm water, and reflecting on the ceiling a kind of flickering uncertainty. I think it's the best image to go along with Yeats's notion of the best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passion and intensity. I think it's an indictment of the, the hope that we can get out of this problem by reflection. You see, because the simile is a simile of reflection, of reflected light, and it's of, of complete confusion. Tossing it well on this hand and then on the other hand and how are we going to do it, and so on and so forth. I think it's something that Virgil's suffering from in this poem. He doesn't have a position from which to gain some clarity on the situation. Well, okay, now, the thing I want to focus on is this. Aeneas is told that there's an ally in Italy, and the ally is King Evander and his son, young son, Pallas. And so Aeneas goes to Evander's society, and when he gets there, lo and behold, he gets there on the day that they celebrate the annual ritual of Hercules, who is their patron god. So Aeneas is invited to be a spectator at this ritual remembrance of their salvation at the hands of Hercules. I think the story of the ritual of Hercules is an overture to the climax of this poem. It has all the themes in it, and in a way it rehearses an emotional reaction. It tells us, before we get to the main story, its basic structure and plot and how we are to emote. So one of the things an overture does in a very subtle way is that it awakens certain expectations and uh, kind of sets us up so that when these things begin to unfold, we will have already rehearsed them in some way so that we'll be able to emote according to plan. This is what I call the soundtrack, you know. And I would say a very important part of the soundtrack of this poem is this little ritual. It has everything in it for understanding how appropriate it is at the very end for Aeneas to kill Turnus. Now, when we get to the end, we probably won't feel that. And that's to Virgil's credit, really. But nevertheless, I think that's the function of this little ritual. So here it is. Evander, first of all, explains why they're doing this ritual. We should probably set this up in terms of this little image of Aeneas reflecting. The simile for Aeneas is this bowl 
that's fairly calm water, light coming in and the light reflecting on the ceiling, but not coming to any conclusion, not knowing what to do, you know, the best lack all conviction, uh, uncertain, you see, going this way and that. When he gets to Evander, Evander's answer is the answer of all ancient societies, and that is, the answer is primitive religion. Uh, one engages in these religious rituals, and they rehearse all that has to be done in order to solve these problems. So forget the reflection, just rehearse these r religious rituals, and this will get you going. This, by the way, fits exactly with Hamlet. You know, Hamlet can't do what he wants to do, so he hires these actors to come in and perform this drama, which will awaken the clarity, the moral clarity. You know, it will make him, it will make everybody who sees it realize what a moral duty one has to kill the monster who killed the good king earlier. You see, something like that. So it's exactly parallel with the Hamlet story of the play within the play in Hamlet. And so uh, we, we get a little picture of this ritual. First of all, Evander, King Evander, explains why they do the ritual. He says, It was no empty superstition on our part and not our ignorance of ancient gods that laid these solemn rituals on us, this customary feast, this altar sacred to such a mighty presence. Trojan guest, because we have been saved from savage dangers, it is for this that we now sacrifice. I think this is absolutely true. He says we've been saved from savage dangers, and that's why we perform these rituals, and that's true of all ancient societies. These sacrificial things really did work. The myths that justified the violence that created the culture came into being at the same time that the rituals came into being that reenacted those violent origins. Those things actually did save ancient cultures from terrible catastrophes. And that's what Evander is saying. He said, we're not doing this. We didn't make it up. We're not superstitious people. This saved us, and we know it, and we're going back to it and rehearsing it again and again. And then he says, but first, look at this cliff with the hanging rocks, with boulders scattered far about. Here, a cavern was set back in a vast recess. The rays of sun had never reached it. It was held by the fierce shape of the half-human Caucasus. So we have a half-human monster in the bowels of the mountain. And we'll find out in a minute he's a murderous monster. And so this is our problem. We've got a murderous monster on our hand, and he's living in the bowels of a mountain where no sunlight has ever gone. To me, that the image of no sunlight would be the definition of myth, in a way. That's where you get half-human monsters. The sun doesn't shine in there, and so you can come up with half-human monsters. I have something extraneous. I'll try to be as quick as I can. But if you have half-human monsters in the bowels of a mountain, it's like having a minotaur in the bowels of a labyrinth. You know, you have this dark, sacrificial monster in there, murderous monster in there, and he's always half-human. That's where no sunlight goes. The mastermind of one such place namely the labyrinth, was Daedalus. And Daedalus and his son Icarus were in the tower. And the tower is just an extension, an annex of the labyrinth. They tried to flee from that sacrificial labyrinth on wings of their own construction. That is to say, they try to flee it in the same way that we try to flee it. They try to flee it in the same way that the Enlightenment tried to flee it. They try to flee it in the same way that the modern deconstructionists try to flee it on the wings of their unfettered imagination. 
That's how we'll get away from it. We'll think our way out of this. Or we'll imagine our way out of this. And so they take flight. And guess what? The thing they're flying from is a, is a murderous monster on whom no rays of the sun fall. And Icarus-like, they fly up a little too close to the rays of truth. And the rays of truth begin to destroy those wings that, that flew them there. I think if we put these two mythological images next to each other, we get something that might help us understand the fact that the Enlightenment is collapsing around us and that one of the symptoms of that collapse is a intellectual fashion we call deconstruction. I don't want to get into that anyway. I just that, I was kind of fascinated by that image. Let me go back to the to the uh, ritual now. Evander continues to fill in the picture, and he says of Caucus. Evander now says of Caucus, the ground was always warm with recent blood. Talking about the ground around where Caucus resided, always warm with recent blood. Now. What's that mean? That means sacrifices are happening all the time. Let's read this as a myth, which, of course, is what it is. If it's always warm with blood, it means two things, I would say. It means there are copious sacrifices taking place. Now, that's a symptom of something. What's it mean when there are too many sacrifices taking place? It means the sacrificial system is breaking down. Because it's when it's really working, one good sacrifice lasts at least a year sometimes much longer if it's dramatic and it's ritually reenacted with animal victims or something like that. It can last a long time. If the sacrificial system is really intact, there are very few victims. It's, and it's extremely economical in terms of bloodshed. It's only when it begins to break down that we have more and more and more victims. There seems to be no way to placate the demand that the ancients thought was a divine demand for more victims. So the fact that the, the ground was always warm with recent blood is, an, is a marker that tells us that the sacrificial system is breaking down. And it says, and also the very fact that the blood is there as a scandalous presence. You see, if the myth has hold of you, you don't see that blood as scandalous. You see it as a rosy glow surrounding everything. You see, it doesn't become a moral outrage. When it becomes a moral outrage, that means, by definition, the myth has broken down. So the ground was always warm with recent slaughter, said Evander, and then he goes on to say, and fastened to the proud doorpost, the faces of men hung pale with putrefaction. In other words, you have this tremendous sacrificial monster. See? And then he says, Vulcan was the father of this monster. Keep that in mind. That's an important marker as well. Vulcan was the father of this monster. Those black fires that Caucus belched and his huge bulk were Vulcan. At last, says Evander, in answer to our prayers, time brought help to us, the coming of a god, for Hercules was here, the great avenger. Now, this tells us what we need to know already. This is what happens. You have this, this rampaging uh, source of violence. And then another source of violence comes that ends the violence violently, and that's the story of the second half of the Aeneid. 
So we, we're, we're being set up to understand structurally and mythologically what's happened. The other thing we have to realize is that this is basically a grade B movie. The whole thing is basically a grade B movie, or the other way around. Grade B movies are based precisely the same structure. We should downgrade them, I think. They don't deserve a B, do you think? We still call them that. We should. It's too bad. We should. It, it should no no more than a D, I would say. Uh, but in any event, <clears throat> uh, there's a one very important element in this grade B movie scenario, and that is, in the old westerns. See, this dates me to say this, but in the old westerns, the good guy is sitting at the bar drinking his sarsaparilla. And the gunslinger is over there calling his mother names or, or uh, you know, beating up on the, the heroine or something. And finally, the good guy, something is just more than he can take. And he turns around and blows this guy away. And we all cheer. You see. That's the great B movie. Well, it's exactly that in myth and in, uh, in the Aeneid. Virgil's uneasy about it, but he doesn't know another scenario. So he has to play the one he has. Well, here, first of all, you have to have this final straw, the last straw, as we say. And the last straw is the triggering device for unleashing righteous or sacred violence. And it becomes righteous or sacred thanks to that triggering device. So here we have it in this myth Evander's still telling the story of Hercules and Caucus. You see, it's nice. You have monsters and gods. Uh, they come in match sets in the ancient world. You, can't, you, you have to have one in order to have the other. The god becomes a god by killing the monster, you see. And then very often, a little while later, because, because A, um, power corrupts, and B, pride goeth before the fall, uh, that god becomes a monster and another god comes along. That's why when you, when you learn about the creation of the world in the, in the Greco-Roman world, there's a kind, first of all, there's Uranus, and Kronos has to kill Uranus, you see, and you get, you see, it, it, it's that kind of thing. So the god needs a monster to kill in order for his, for his own divinization to become effective, you see. So, the gods all hate the monsters, but where would they be without them? You see what I mean? So now we have Caucus has to, somehow the, the triggering device has to be set off. So Caucus, for no good reason, steals four bulls and four heifers from the herds of Hercules. Now, I have no idea how big the herd of Hercules was or how dearly he loved his his bulls and heifers, but here's what happened. At this, the wrath of Hercules was hot with black gall and with grief. He snatched up his weapons and massive knotted club makes for the hilltop, you see, for the showdown. You stole my bulls and heifers. Okay, buddy. And off he goes. It's just a great B movie, but it has to have the triggering device because it's at that moment it becomes, you see, first of all, we're talking about a shame culture. It becomes a matter of honor, you see, shame, I've been offended, and that offense cannot stand, you see, uh, and also it becomes wrath, it's repaying, it's 
So the whole thing is now being played out in terms of repaying a debt, an offense. And by the way, Paul is the one who understood this most of all. He understood that these prohibitions, you see, there's a law against stealing bulls and heifers, okay? And if it works, it's a very good law. It keeps people from falling into murderous rivalry with one another. It kind of builds a, a wall so it keeps a little bit of peace. And so it's a good thing. The law is a good thing. It helps us stay sane and civil. On the other hand, this is what Paul saw because Paul went out to enforce the law and discovered that he was becoming a murderer. What Paul found out is that that law is also the tripwire for unleashing our sacred violence so that when things are ordinary, the law serves to stabilize social situations very good. But when things start to foment and you get a lot of confusion, the law becomes the tripwire. It's like the alarm system that goes off and whoever has their finger on it when, they, when it goes off, they're the designated culprit. And their elimination will restore social solidarity to the community. And that's what Paul saw about it. He says sin takes advantage of the law. Well, you want a pagan version of that? Sin taking advantage of the law? It's caucus stealing the bulls and heifers and Hercules going up the mountain to murder him. Now, as I said, this is an overture. Caucus will be Turnus in the main story, and Hercules will be Aeneas. So we're, we're simply rehearsing what's going to happen. Now, here's what happens. Hercules goes up, and the text says he knocks the top off the mountain in order to see down into this squalid abyss where Caucus resides. Quote, as if the earth ripped open by some violence, unlocked the house of hell and all its pallid kingdoms so hated by the gods, and one could see deep down into the dread abyss. So to knock that off and to see all the pallid kingdoms in this dread abyss, I think there's a parallel here to Jesus in the wilderness and the temptation in the desert. You see, Jesus saw all the kingdoms of the world, and he saw that Satan was in charge of them, Satan the accuser. And he called him, in Matthew's gospel, called him Satan at exactly that moment, the, the accuser. Before that, he was called the Diabolos, the sower of discord. And when suddenly he saw that he could bestow all these kingdoms, Jesus called him Satan. I mean, I think there's something really important there. Uh, but here you have a kind of pagan version of the same thing, looking down and seeing these pallid kingdoms and being totally scandalized by it and going diving, literally diving down into the abyss and starting a new one, a new one of these kingdoms of the world. You see, I'm going to, I'm so offended by the sordid nature of the existing kingdom, I'm going to kill its reigning monarch and start another one. And you can only start another one by killing its reigning monarch. And that's exactly it right there. You have to have the founding murder. You have to have the founding violence, the sacred violence, to get it started. So Hercules, in his rage, dives down and chokes the life out of Caucus and drags his lifeless carcass out of the cavern and becomes the god for these people. He's now the divine one. Well, that's precisely the pattern that this poem is going to follow. Although, to Virgil's credit, he lays into the story a lot of undercurrent because he himself, I think, has moral problems with that 
motif. And one of the things that Virgil lays into the poem that cuts in the opposite direction is this reference to the fact that Vulcan is the father of the monster Caucus. Because very shortly after that reference is made, we have a scene in which Aeneas's mother, who, by the way, is married to Vulcan, Aeneas's father is the mortal Anchises, and his mother is the goddess Venus, but she is married to Vulcan. So Vulcan's already his stepfather, you could say. But now he's going to become his godfather. That is to say, Vulcan is reluctant to make the armor for Aeneas, and Venus has to seduce him. And it's at least PG-13, this seduction scene. Uh, here's how it goes. She turns to Vulcan in their golden wedding chamber, breathing celestial love into her words. The goddess speaks, and as he hesitates, that's the big word, you know, it's always associated with Aeneas, as he hesitates, with snow-white arms on this side and on that, she warms him in a soft embrace. At once he caught the customary flame. Familiar heat reached into his marrow. We know what that means. And then, you see, we pan to the treetops or something, and it says, his wife rejoicing in her craftiness and conscious of her loveliness sensed that this customary flame was being aroused, you see. And she plied him with her wishes. And now he's going to make armor for Aeneas. And I would say what you have here is a seduction scene at which armed Aeneas is conceived. And so he becomes not just the stepchild, but the godchild of Vulcan, who is the father of the monster Caucus. So again, that's part of the moral complexity of, of this poem. That seems far-fetched, maybe. But what does Vulcan do? He makes a shield. And on this shield, he depicts all the great Roman victories that are to come later. And that's exactly what the natural father of Aeneas, Anchises, did in Hades. What Anchises did in Hades is that he told Aeneas the story of all of these Roman victories. And now Aeneas's godfather, Vulcan, is giving him a shield on which are depicted precisely those same events. So I think, again, it's the father and godfather kind of motif. Okay, now I'm going to go, I'm going to cut to the chase scene, okay? There's a lot in between. For example, there's a kind of symmetry. Turnus has a young ally whose name is Lausus, and Aeneas kills him. And Aeneas has a young ally whose name is Pallas, and Turnus kills him. Now, that's structurally necessary for the same reason that it was necessary for Caucus to steal the bulls and heifers of Hercules. You see what I mean? There has to be a tripwire that unleashes this righteous rage. So as it was in the Iliad when Hector killed Patroclus, the young friend of Achilles, so here it's when Turnus kills Pallas, the young, the young ally of Aeneas, that Aeneas's righteous rage is awakened. And we have to have that tripwire. We have to have something that will set that in motion. Finally, get to the final scene, which is showdown between Aeneas and Turnus. 
Now, there was a similar showdown in the Iliad. That was when Achilles chased Hector three times around the, the walls of the Trojan citadel. Here, Aeneas chases Turnus, but it's not in a circle. Rather, it's in a labyrinth. And the language used to describe this chase is the same language used to describe the labyrinth. And then there's a simile, which is a dog chasing a stag, and it says of the stag, he wheels back and forth in a thousand ways. The same exact language that's used in the labyrinth when it says it's an ambiguous maze of a thousand ways, a winding course that mocked all signs of finding a way out. So the chase scene at the end is labyrinthine. It's clearly these two guys are in the labyrinth, and the question is, how do you get out of the labyrinth? And I think Virgil is right there not knowing. There's one little episode that I want to highlight here for a second. And it's this. Turnus is fleeing from Aeneas. And it says, he, Turnus, sees a giant stone, an ancient giant stone that lay at hand by chance upon the plain, set there as boundary mark between the fields to keep the farmers free from border quarrel. So here's a boundary mark. Now we think, oh, boundary marks, oh, well, they, you know, they just drew a line and so on and so forth. We don't realize when that boundary mark, if you go back to ancient cultures, I'm going to explain here and say, connects into the whole sacred system. So it's not just any old stone that Turnus picks up. He picks up, in a sense, the cultural markers, the last of the cultural markers, and he throws it as a weapon. In other words, he uses the, the old marking system. This is, in many ways, this is just what Paul saw about the law. You know, sin takes advantage of the law. He takes the old marker and throws it as a weapon at Aeneas. And it misses Aeneas, and I'll come back to that in a second. I have here something that I probably shouldn't take time for, and maybe I'll try to summarize it as we go along, but there's an absolutely fascinating, I thought fascinating, discussion in Fustel de Colangio's book, The Ancient City, in which he describes the solemn, sacred ritual of demarcating cities and boundaries in the ancient world. And he specifically talks about the story from various sources that comes down of the marking off of the city of Rome by Romulus. And a solemn marking off of the boundary of Rome begins with Romulus serving as the priest, his head covered and intoning things as they go. And they plow with a copper plow this line. And there are all these attendant acolyte priests who take any of the clods that fall outside of the city of what's going to be the city, and they throw them inside because none of the sacred ground inside must be outside the wall. All the sac Everything turned up is sacred, so all of that is thrown back in. Uh, and they go around pr praying and offering sacrifices and so on. And then there are places where they have to, have to lift the plow up and walk it a few paces and then put it down. And those are the places which will be the, the doorways into the town, you see, the passageways, because if the plow, any place the plow goes, any crossing of that is instant death, which is exactly what happens to Romulus's brother, Remus. Romulus kills Remus for jumping over the ditch. The meaning of this ceremony is that the sacred 
is always located at the center. The sacred is always where the founding murder took place and the pile of stones that's built up there and the altar which those stones become and the sacrifices and fires that occur on that altar. And then from that, like ripples in a pool of water, from that goes out the sacred, the aura of the sacred. What this marking off of the boundary does is that it begins by taking some of the fire or some of the sacrificial blood from that center and taking it out and dripping it along the periphery so that the periphery is as sacralized as the center. It has, in between, is still profane. In between the sacred center and the sacred boundary, it's still just ordinary life, profane life. But there's just as much sacrality at the periphery as there is at the center, which means if anybody touches it, they're blasted away, which is what makes the borders. That's why we have wars. People violate the borders, as we say, the sacredness of the borders. To me, it's pretty amazing how this happens. And the very fact that Rome is founded by Romulus, who murdered his brother for crossing it, is another indication of things. So when Turnus picks up this boundary stone, that boundary stone had, was a remnant of the old sacred system. You could almost say the last remnant of the old sacred system. And he has used it as a weapon, meaning it's all gone. We're going to have to start from scratch. You know, the question is, who's going to get scratched? I mean, what's the scratch going to be? Well, it's going to have to be the death of the offending one. You see. And who's the offending one? Well, obviously, Turnus is the offending one for all kinds of reasons. But even on this score, you see, he's the one who took the last remnant of the old structural system and used it as a weapon. This stone is an example of them. These markers have, as I said, a number of functions depending on the state of the culture. If the culture is intact, they do what they're designed to do. They keep the farmers from quarreling. Everybody knows that's a sacred line there. They perform a restraining function on certain kind of rivalries that tend to develop in social settings. If the society becomes a little more agitated, these boundaries or markers provide the tripwire for designating the culprit against whom we can all unite and therefore restore order, you see, and without disturbing these things. When a culture is in the midst of a more profound breakdown, these things are literally torn loose and used as weapons. And that's when you get a terrible catastrophe. At, when Troy is being destroyed, at the very first of this poem, Aeneas is describing the destruction of Troy by the Greeks. The Trojans themselves do two things. They begin to dress like Greeks. They get the armor of the Greeks, you see. So you can't tell a Trojan from a Greek. And they begin to dismantle their own citadel and throw it at the Greeks as they're coming, which is just another version of this same thing. The old structures begin to be used as weapons and so the thing begins to fall apart. Now, here's a New Testament version of that. Jesus is walking in the temple at the portico of Solomon, and he's talking, and there's scandal is being sowed. You know, the, the gospel has a scandalous effect. The text says, the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Now, they're in the temple precinct. Where do they get the stone? Well, if they're in the temple, they get them, I would say, at least metaphorically, they get them from the temple. They get them from some part of the temple structure, which has to be, I think, finally 
correlated with what Jesus says in the apocalyptic discourses at the end of Matthew. And, and they begin, the, the, the uh, prelude to the apocalyptic discourses is Jesus coming out of the temple and going away and his disciples pointing the temple out to him and noticing how magnificent it is. And Jesus says to them, truly, I tell you, not one stone will be left on another. And I think it has to be correlated with this scene earlier in John's gospel when Jesus is in the temple and they want to stone him. And you get a hint that that's precisely what's going to happen. It's a prefiguration of the fundamental cultural problem. More and more, these, these old remnants of the sacred system will be used to fight the culture wars that they can no longer prevent. And you have a tremendous meltdown. Now I want to turn to the very last scene of the poem. Turnus picking up this stone and throwing it at Aeneas happens right before this last scene. And the stone falls short and Aeneas throws a spear and hits Turnus. Turnus falls and Aeneas approaches him. And here's what the text says. Then, humble suppliant, Turnus lifts his eyes and searching out his hands, entreating, cries, quote, I have indeed deserved this. I do not appeal against it. Use your chance. But if there is a thought of a dear parent's grief that now can touch you, then I beg you, pity old Downus. In Anchises, you had such a father. Send me back, or if you wish, send back my lifeless body to my kin. For you have won, and the Asonians have seen me beaten, stretch out my hands. Lavinia is yours, then do not press your hatred further. End quote. He stretches out his hands, pleading for mercy, and he says, the Asonians, the my people, have seen me do, do this. I mean, they're out of earshot, you see, so it has to have been a gesture like that. They realize that I'm appealing to your mercy. So then now the, all of those hesitations in the poem all come into a focus. Aeneas stood ferocious in his armor. His eyes were restless, and he stayed his hand. And as he hesitated, Turnus's words began to move him more and more, until high on the Latin's shoulder, he made out the luckless belt of Pallas. Now, I forgot to remind you of this, but when Turnus kills Pallas, the young friend of Aeneas, he takes war booty, which is the belt of Pallas, and he keeps it. Now, why does he do that? That's not the question. The question is, why does the storyteller include that? And the answer is because we have to have a triggering device. We have to have a tripwire for unleashing righteous, sacred violence. See, we have to have an act of transgression that makes the vengeance against it sacred. Aeneas is hesitating turning his mind this way and that, until high on the Latin's shoulder he made out the luckless belt of Pallas, of the boy whom Turnus had defeated, wounded, stretched upon the battlefield, 
from whom he took this fatal sign to wear upon his back, this girdle glittering with familiar studs. And when Aeneas's eyes drank in this plunder, this memorial of brutal grief, Aeneas aflame with rage, his wrath was terrible, cried out. Now I'm going to tell you what he cried out and said in just a second. But you see how this is a perfect parallel to what Hercules did when Cacus stole his four bulls and four heifers. You see what I mean? It's that, it's that triggering thing. The last straw. Aeneas cries out, quote, How can you who wear the spoils of my dear comrade escape me? It is Pallas who strikes you, who sacrifices you, who takes this payment from your shameless blood. Relentless, he sinks his sword into the chest of Turnus. His limbs fall slack with chill, and with a moan his life resentful fled to the shades below. End of poem. Such an abrupt ending of the poem. No ticker tape parades, no grand vision of Rome to come. There can be no doubt, whatever the circumstances surrounding the way this poem ends, there can be no doubt that this poem ends on a victory which is palpably a moral and you would almost say epistemological defeat for the poet. The labyrinth, he's still inside the labyrinth, and Virgil, for one, knows it. Now, maybe those patriotic people who hadn't thought as deeply as Virgil might read this and not know it. But Virgil knew it. He's still inside the labyrinth. Note the word resentful at the very end. His, his life flees resentful to the shades below. That resentment is the seed of the next violence. You see, it's always going to be there. Somebody can trigger it later. It's like when the Serbians decided to resurrect their national rage. They went back to a defeat that was suffered 600 years ago and began nursing that grief. Here we have this little seed of resentment that will always be there. Somebody else can tap into it later on. That's one thing. It's radically different from what happens when Jesus forgives his persecutors from the cross, when Stephen prays that the sin of their persecution not be held against them, you say. No resentment there. But really what I want to focus on is the fact that Aeneas says, it's not me who's killing you, it's Pallas. So you have a diffusion of things. And then the real one is, Pallas is not murdering you, he is sacrificing you. It is a sacrifice. And quite obviously it made me think of the passages in Julius Caesar before the conspirators kill Caesar. They talk about, well, maybe we should kill some of Caesar's allies while we're at it. Antony, for example. And Brutus says, Shakespeare's Brutus says, our course would seem too bloody, Caius Cassius, to cut the head off and then hack the limbs, like wrath and death and envy afterwards. For Antony is but a limb of Caesar. 
Let's be sacrificers, not butchers, Caiaphas. Let's kill him boldly, but not wrathfully. Let's carve him as a dish for the gods, not hew him as a carcass fit for hounds. Carve him as a dish for the gods. That's the sacrificial knife. The sacrificial knife has to be surgical and calm and sacred and poised and sure of itself. Not wrath and heavy breathing and any of that, you see. Don't want any of that. In a way, the moral enemy in Virgil's poem is furor impious, unholy rage. And in fact, Aeneas has killed Turnus in an unholy rage, but he has tried to sanctify it by calling it a sacrifice in exactly the same way that Brutus does in Shakespeare. Now, there's one other point. Just before Aeneas kills Turnus, Turnus invokes the name of Aeneas's father, Anchises. He says, spare me for the sake of my father. You had such a father in Anchises. Well, that's very interesting because that invocation of Anchises comes just a few lines before Aeneas kills Turnus. The last words of Anchises to, to Aeneas were these. Yours will be the rulership of nations. Remember, Roman, these will be your arts to teach the ways of peace to those you conquer, to spare defeated peoples, tame the proud. To spare defeated peoples, that's what this whole Roman enterprise is all about. And it's going to begin right here, right now. How? By not sparing this one. You can afford to spare defeated peoples as long as you don't spare the one whose death is required in order to found the culture. Here's the question. Does the moral imperative to spare defeated people leave intact the ferocity it takes to defeat them? You see what I'm saying? I don't think it does. Virgil wants to spare defeated peoples, but he knows that you've got to defeat them first. There's your problem. And not only do you have to defeat them first, but the final act of violence in that defeat has to be decisive in precisely the way in which the, the killing of Turnus by Aeneas is decisive. And so Virgil is caught in this world. He wants to spare defeated peoples, but all he has to do it with is the Roman power that's determined to defeat them in the first instance. And you can't spare them and defeat them at the same time. And so there's the labyrinth. The people who don't spared defeated peoples do so because they sense what might happen to them if they start sparing defeated peoples. Or, for example, when Pilate washes his hand, does he realize what's happening? Yeah, they say, well, you're no, you're no friend of Caesar if you let this man go. In other words, the crowd begins to voice its determination to have a victim one way or another. And if you won't give us one, you'll be one. That's essentially the extortion involved. So I'll hearken to us for a second to Christopher Dawson, who in his book on the religion and the rise of Western culture, talks about the incursion of Christianity into European society, pagan society. And he says, it was hard for warlike barbarians to accept the Christian ethic of renunciation and forgiveness in their rulers, who had been the living embodiment of their pride of blood. As we see from St. Bede's story of King Siebert of Essex, who was killed because, quote, 
He was wont to spare his enemies and forgive them the wrong they had done as soon as they asked him, end quote. And so he was killed. And that's because in a time of crisis, you can spare your defeated enemies, but not at the expense of omitting the founding murder. Because if you omit that, the decisive event that produces peace is left out. Now, this is in the old anthropology. But we're in a world which is trying to break free of the old anthropology and go towards something else. And I want to make mention of one moment, an episode in a way, in that transition from the old to the new anthropology. And in a way, it's a little bit of a, it's a version of the harrowing of hell almost. And it's in Dante. Dante works out his poem in terms of the history of Florence. And dating from its Latin and pagan past, Florence, its patron, was the pagan god Mars, the god of war. And when the Florentine commune converted to Christianity, they replaced Mars with John the Baptist as their new patron. And in Canto 13 of the Inferno, an unidentified suicide says to Dante, my home is the city whose first patron gave way to John the Baptist, and for this reason, he'll always, meaning Mars, he'll always use his art to make it sorrow. And I think what we can read into this is that the sacrificial system that Mars represents, the old anthropology that Mars represents, begins to misfire when the Christian incursion takes place. Its myths begin to deconstruct, which means that if you continue to rely on that old mechanism, which is essentially a scapegoating mechanism, to the extent that you continue to rely on that, you do so at your own peril because it won't work anymore. It'll still produce a lot of scapegoating and sacrificial things, but it won't produce the harmony that it once produced before Christianity blew the whistle, you see. So you better start renouncing it because it's no longer the solution. It's now the curse. And Dante begins to intuit this in his poem in a way. For Dante, the whole problem of culture is summed up in the civil war that had gone on in the 13th century between the Guelphs and the Ghibellines. And this was something like the civil war that Virgil had, had uh, that was in the background of Virgil's poem. So Dante locates the beginning. Now, this is the point. By the way, this is coming from this book by Quinones, which is a fascinating study. And this is all indebted to him, but I, I think it's absolutely uh, fascinating. Uh, Dante locates the beginning of this. I'm going to try to make some sense out of this in a second, so just bear with me. Dante locates the beginning of this catastrophic civil war at a certain moment in the year 1215. And it was when a young woman of the Amadei family was jilted by Bondelmonte of a, of a family by the same name. And vengeance was taken on Bon del Monte as he was on his way to Easter Sunday Mass. And he was accosted by thugs from the Amadei family at the foot of the statue of Mars, which by that time had become a ruin. The statue had fallen into disrepair, you know. It was a ruined statue, a broken statue. And Bon del Monte was murdered at the foot of the statue of Mars on Easter Sunday morning in the year 1215, and that murder gave rise to the civil war between the, the Ghibellines and the Guelphs. And Dante goes back to that moment, and he sees its amazing 
symbolic significance. Easter, the broken statue of the God of war. So it's an act of vengeance on Easter Sunday morning. And there you have Florence right in the middle of the great anthropological transition. So in the Paradiso, Canto 16, Caccia Guida, who's Dante's great-great-grandfather, says to Dante, quote, it was fitting that to the broken stone, or the mutilated stone, he's talking about the statue of Mars, it was fitting that to the broken stone that guards the bridge, Florence should offer a victim to mark the last day's peace she has ever known. In other words, the sacrificial act that would have brought peace now brings civil war. That's what C.S. Lewis in the Narnia stories calls death working backward. You see, it used to bring peace and now it brings war. And here's what Quinones says after he does that, I think, really marvelous analysis. He says, quote, Dante finds that foundation sacrifice, far from doing what it was intended to do, that is to bring a halt to accelerating reciprocal violence, initiates and generates those very processes. The end result of these processes is the very undifferentiation it was designed to prevent, the very crisis that it was designed to prevent. There was a moment in the world when one could murder at the foot of that statue and end the violence. You see, a sacrificial murder, fully sacralized, could bring an end to the violence. And now it simply unleashes it. Well, let me take us quickly from the 13th to the 20th century and read you a New York Times story about death working backwards. Quote, this was uh, April 22nd, New York Times. It was on April 19th, 1993, that a siege by federal agents at the Branch Davidian compound near Waco, Texas, came to a fiery end as the cult's leader, David Koresh, and some 80 followers perished in a blazing apocalypse, an event enshrined by right-wing groups across the country as a symbol of federal tyranny against American citizens. It was last Wednesday, exactly two years after that event, that the truck bomb exploded at the federal building in Oklahoma's capital, killing scores of people, including many children, and, well, now we know more than that even, and wounding hundreds more in the worst act of terrorism in the nation's history. It was also last Wednesday that a white supremacist who had murdered a black officer, a black police officer, and a Jewish businessman was executed in Arkansas, an execution that a right-wing newsletter last month had warned would take place, quote, unless we act now, end quote. And as, still quoting from the newspaper article, and as investigators noted yesterday, it was that same date, April 19, 1993, that was printed as the date of issue on the forged South Dakota driver's license used last Monday to rent the Ryder truck that contained the Oklahoma City bomb. And an another article the next day in the New York Times made the point that Timothy McVeigh, the first person to have become implicated in the in that and to be accused of participating in the bombing. Uh, the next day's article says, McVeigh visited Waco, acquaintances said, and went away with deep-seated anger and resentment against the federal government. Uh, there you have that question of resentment. His, his life fled resentful to the shades below. 
But what you also have here is suddenly the violence uh, that is the official violence, violence heretofore sacralized, is now scandalizing. If we can't sacralize it, we'll be scandalized by it. And if we're scandalized by it, we're very likely to repeat it, aiming the replicating violence at the perpetrators of the original violence. So you get exactly what Dante saw in, as a result of the murder in 1215. This is the world we live in. Now, give, let me give you one more example. At the end of the Lord of the Flies, as you know, we did that some time ago. The, the, the boys have become, the English school boys have become this murderous, sacrificial mob. They're chasing Ralph. They're going to cut his head off and put it on a stick. And they're running across the beach. The, the island is in flames. And Ralph suddenly comes upon this Navy officer standing there in his official white uniform. Here's how Golding has it. He staggered to his feet, Ralph, staggered to his feet, tensed for more terrors, and looked up at a huge peaked cap. It was a white-topped cap, and above the green shade of the peak was a crown, an anchor, gold foliage. He saw white drill, epaulets, a revolver, a row of gilt buttons down the front of the uniform, and order was restored. Because these savage boys came out of the woods and they saw the same magnificent figure and they suddenly became civilized. Golding notes that this guy just got off a destroyer ship that's been cruising around the ocean looking for its victim, just the same way these boys have been looking for Ralph. Golding knows that. He says that. Uh, but for the time being, that's like, that's like some of the things Virgil says. That, we don't notice that. Because we can't afford to notice that if we want to have the benefits of this officer's civilizing presence. We can't look into what he really represents. You see what I'm saying? Well, okay, so there's that picture. Now, cut to something more recent. Another New York Times article, April 25th. Three weeks before the explosion in Oklahoma City, a bomb blew out windows and ripped open a hole inside the Forest Service office in Carson City, Nevada. That same week in Montana, a self-styled citizen's militia leader directed threats at several public officials saying, quote, there cannot be a cleansing without the shedding of blood, end quote. At least two judges say they now fear for their lives. And in Idaho, some federal agencies have virtually stopped performing some of their duties, fearing violence from a handful of people who have made the government their number one enemy. To wear a uniform of the federal government in some counties is now seen as wearing a target. I, I ask you to compare that, you see, to the ending of The Lord of the Flies. When we can't sacralize our violence, it becomes scandalous. To say it scandalizes means that it both outrages us and incites us to perform an act of imitation, which is based on the violence that's outraged us. And so that's the world we live in. Now, we have to remember something else. That makes it sound like we're still in the labyrinth, and we're not. It's very important. We're not in it. We're not in it. 
I would say this. The cross shows us that there is no catastrophe, however grave, to which there is no Christ-like response. That means that even when these catastrophes befall us, it's possible for a Christ-like response, a Christian response, to be made. Now, I say that because these terrible things that happened in history and happened to us are going to happen. It's like Jesus saying, the poor will always be with you. These catastrophes are going to always be here. They're going to happen to us. They're going to happen to our brothers and sisters. The question is whether or not they become an occasion for the triumph of the old system of revenge and sacrifice, or they become an occasion for the triumphs of the God of love. So here's something else. Another New York Times story about the same uh, terrible thing in Oklahoma City, but it says, quote, even as the disputes raged, there were other images of the calamity in Oklahoma, images that did not wane or change with passing days. They were of President Clinton and his wife planting a tree, of exhausted rescuers working through the rain and thunder, of people rallying as best they could to help, whether bringing food, talking, hugging a victim, or just weeping and praying as the reports came in. And so in a New York Times editorial that same day, the editorial writer said, quote, thousands mourned the loss at an inspirational memorial service in Oklahoma on Sunday. The enduring image of this tragedy may be the picture of a police officer cradling a fatally injured infant whom he called my baby, adopting it on the spot, as did the entire nation. Now there's an image of something else, you see. That's what you do unto the least of these you do unto me kind of thing. Adopting that child on the spot and referring to it as my baby. I want to close by reading something to you that was written by J.V. Langmead Casserly in an essay he wrote about the Christian existentialism of Gabriel Marcel. And it serves as well as anything, probably, to show what it is that Virgil could not imagine and what we, thanks to the gospel and the gospel revelation, can imagine. Whether we can live up to it is another thing but at least it has entered into our world. Here's what he says. The question, you know, that's posed by terrible things that happen in the world is the question of evil. And the question Virgil is asking himself in this poem is, how do you get rid of evil? How do you get rid of evil? And his answer is, well, you arm yourself to the teeth and you crush it and you hold it down. The question is how to, how to deal with evil in the world without spreading it or without, in a sense, using its own mechanisms. When the poem tells us that Vulcan was the father of Cacus, the murderous monster, and then Virgil tells us he was also the godfather of Aeneas, we realize we have this problem of Satan casting out Satan. And therefore, the whole problem of evil is still with us. And Virgil simply didn't know how to get out of that labyrinth. So I offer you these words from... Uh, Professor Casserly, uh, which he wrote when pondering the work of uh, Gabriel Marcel, he says, There is a sense in which we can validly talk about the problem of evil 
And that, significantly enough, is the one sense in which the Christian can intelligibly claim that the problem has been solved by Jesus Christ and is therefore, in principle, solvable by us in and through Jesus Christ. The true problem of evil is not the speculative problem of making sense of the fact of evil in terms of a Christian theodicy. Theodicy means how you justify the notion that God is both omnipotent and just. You see, if God is omnipotent and just, how do we have things like the Holocaust uh, and so on? So that's theodicy. It's a particular kind of theology. And so what Casserly is saying is that the problem, I'll just quote it again, the problem of evil is not the speculative problem of making sense of the fact of evil in terms of a Christian theodicy, but the problem of learning so to live with evil and to endure its sting without reciprocation that faith may not be confounded, hope extinguished, and charity transformed into bitterness and hate. That existential problem, Casserly says, Christ solved triumphantly on the cross. Sixty or seventy years after Virgil wrote the last words of the Aeneid, in which he describes a victory which is palpably a defeat, there occurs a defeat on the cross which is a victory and the opening to a new world. Virgil could not even imagine it. He could not have imagined it. And we who can imagine it can not because we're brighter than Virgil, but because this revelation has broken into the world. And so I just want to repeat the words that Casserly wrote and try to underscore them. The problem evil presents to us is the problem of learning so to live with evil. Now, by the way, not to tolerate it. You see, not to say, oh, well, there's always, there will always be evil. But it's not a question of resigning oneself to it. This is a fight against it. But one must not fight with its own weapons. That's precisely it, you see. So Casserly says the problem is the problem of learning so to live with evil and to endure its sting without reciprocation. Now, why would we want to do that? Because we're Boy Scouts or because we're Stoics or because we're trying to be nice people? No, that's much more profound than that. We do that, Casserly says, in order that faith may not be confounded, hope extinguished, and charity transformed into bitterness and hate. Because the hope for the world is that faith, hope, and charity will grow and if we respond to evil in its own terms, then we confound faith, extinguish hope, and turn charity into bitterness and hate. And therefore we lose. You see what I'm saying? This is what our friend Virgil could not have imagined. And this is now the hope for the world. To the extent that we still rely on the only thing Virgil had to rely on, which is some kind of sacrificial structure, some kind of founding violence, 
we will run into the problem that Dante describes so marvelously in Canto 16 of the Paradiso. This concludes The Truth of Poetry, Reflections on Virgil's Aeneid by Gil Bailey. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.